Hi, it's Lisa. Welcome back to The Healing Path, a podcast created to connect our broken hearts as we journey into honest conversations about grief and loss in our daily lives. Following the deaths of two of my children, I struggled for many years to fill the holes in my heart. I felt like I tried everything, prayer, meditation, therapy, coaching, reading, journaling, waiting, begging, you name it. Plus, I tried a few less productive approaches. And after two decades of continuing to grieve, it occurred to me that maybe I'd set the wrong goal. Instead of trying to feel better by filling those painful voids, I've learned that building a life around them is a much more attainable target. Speaking openly about my experience of grief and helping to support others to do the same serve as regular reminders that we are not alone. When we allow all the parts of us to have an expression of life, including the painful ones, we may just feel more human and less like robots on autopilot. So I created the Healing Path podcast with the hope that sharing our stories in a mutually compassionate environment will help us to stop working so hard to hide our scars from ourselves and others and start wearing them proudly as the medals of love that they are. So thank you for joining this episode of The Healing Path. Today, I'm chatting about a post called Lean On Me, and the post was shared on Thursday, March 30th, 2023. Nature is one of my favorite aspects of life. In fact, my genuine experience is that nature is life. When the seasons change, I'm reminded that I am part of many different life cycles from micro to macro that repeat again and again with no action of my own whatsoever. Nature is humbling, powerful, loving, creative, and also destructive, and it is always right on time. Notice the sun came up today. Fascinating. A few days ago, as the sun rose and I was admiring the natural landscape behind my home, I noticed a small deer. It blended so well with the surrounding wildlife that I almost missed seeing it. Usually, when I notice deer, they're in a group, so where there is one, there are many. But not on this morning. This little life seemed to be traveling solo and at a slower-than-usual pace. After a few minutes of observing this creature in silent awe, as if I myself had uncovered a buried treasure... I noticed that the deer had a lame leg. Three legs were working appropriately, but every few steps there was a limp. Upon closer observation, I could see that the deer was unable to bear weight on that fourth leg. Being the empath that I am, my experience of the deer shifted from amazement to deep compassion. Oh dear, I proclaimed in a soft whisper realizing that the deer needed help. The sunlight was just starting to reach that part of the yard and confirmed what I thought I was seeing, a deer by itself with a lame leg. If it were up to me, I would help every creature, every walk of life, in every part of the world, every chance I got. For as long as I can remember, seeing any form of life in agony was torture for me. Every life form from the earthworms I used to fish with when I was a little girl, to the encaged lions at the zoo, 
to the crickets singing their sweet melodies at certain times of year, and the miracles of caterpillars and butterflies, I have always felt connected to other living things. Even the trees (laughs) feel like my siblings, my parents, my grandparents, and ancestors. And when one of them sprouts offspring into a new tiny tree next to it, I feel as celebratory as I would had an actual new child been born that day. And in the post, I shared a note that the picture, the image that shared with this post actually uh, features my large crepe myrtle um, tree that actually sprouted a baby tree right next to it. So it's a pretty, pretty picture. So yes, when I saw the limp of the deer on that early morning, it moved me. And this didn't surprise me because I know myself very well. Over the years, I've come to understand that if I feel like capturing a spider only to relocate it outside instead of killing it, that's just me being me. And for decades, I tried to deny my tendency to preserve life in all its splendid expressions. But now that I'm a full-fledged adult, in parentheses most of the time, I just accept this part of myself and I've stopped apologizing for it. But on this silent morning, something else occurred to me. As my observation shifted instantly from a passive onlooking sentiment of, it's so precious, to, oh dear, this deer is injured, I realized that the only reason I was able to shift from appreciation to compassion was because the deer's injury was visible to me. Had the morning light not have stretched to reach the wounded creature in that moment, or had it been facing another direction, I may have never known it was physically compromised. There was nothing for me to do in that moment. I could say a silent prayer and flex my gratitude muscles that on this day my own body was functioning perfectly. I couldn't help the deer, let alone save it. My very presence, if known to it, would have instilled fear and a sense of a threat. After a few moments of stillness, I went about my morning routine but I carried with me this concept of visible versus non-visible injury. And that, as you can probably guess, translated right into my experience of grief, both in others and in myself. For whatever reason, our culture gives us permission to be physically injured. I would even go so far as to say the more weathered, tired, fried, and frazzled we are, the higher we seem to rise on the food chain of what our peeps deem to be successful. If I'm walking on crutches, someone is more likely to hold the door for me than if I'm not. If my arm is in a cast and I have a car that has a stick shift transmission, I'll ask for help with rides and probably get them. If I have a sunburn and tell someone not to touch me, with a hug even, that request is honored. If if I'm unable to hear well, I will ask people to speak up so I can better understand what they're saying. And they do it no judgment, no harm, and no foul. If I'm allergic to gluten, I can request meals to be prepared without it. If I'm diabetic, people around me understand that I may eat differently than they do. And if an alcoholic, people around me support my decision not to imbibe alcohol. And certainly, if I have a limb that is not functioning properly, some kind soul is likely to notice and react accordingly with some type of support. So on its face value, humankind is pretty accommodating to injuries and bodies that don't always work well as long as we can see the injury. 
But why can't we support emotional wounds? What the hell is wrong with us that we can't transition this goodwill of unconditional support and acceptance of someone's lame leg to others who are in grief? Why is a broken arm worthy of support, but a broken heart something we run from? How is it that we can openly ask about someone's healing after a heart attack or a car accident, but we are unable to check in with each other's grief after someone's lost a child, a partner, or a colleague without feeling it might be too stressful or too overwhelming to try? With humility, I've identified two hurdles as the responsible culprits for this chasm of contrasted reactions between the way we as humans respond to physical injury versus emotional injury in ourselves and others. The first hurdle is myself, and the second hurdle is everyone else. And as an aside, if we are grieving, we likely feel physical and emotional injury a buy-one-get-one deal, just to complicate things further. So let's talk about hurdle number one. The first hurdle blocking the flow of compassion toward emotional wounds is, well, me. I am the biggest hindrance to receiving support for some emotional turmoil, including, but not limited to grief, that I'm struggling with. How do I know this? (laughs) Because unlike the deer that couldn't hide its lame leg, I don't let my agony see the light of day. Yep, I said it. (laughs) I hide. Of course I hide. Because hiding seems sometimes like the only way I can muster up the courage to go out in public, try to perform a job, or buy groceries when I can barely breathe. Throw on some lip gloss and mascara, and out the door I go, pretending to be a human being, even though I feel nothing. And I don't blame myself for having as many different identities as my day might demand to get me through a 24-hour time span. It's called survival. So I'm not saying I'm wrong to hide my emotional wounds, but I am admitting loudly and clearly that I do. And when I do, they can't be seen. And I don't mind saying it because I've talked with enough people in grief to know that hiding isn't just a strategy. It's more like the number one strategy when we're trying to live with grief after our loved one dies. But here's the problem. When we hide, dilute, downgrade, put off, ignore, stash, color coat, delay, eat, drink, gamble, gamble, and digitalize ourselves on the regular, we do so to our own extinction. As Grammy Award-winning artist Bill Withers eloquently sings, I just might have a problem that you'll understand. Yet here we are, standing between our pain and someone else's ability to relate to it. We somehow get suckered into thinking, if no one can see our injury, it doesn't exist. In the dear example, this plays out when I myself am hurdle number one by not letting my emotional injury show. My secrecy locks the door to the tender, loving, and sincere care and compassion that I need in order to heal from loss because it's not seen by others. No one sees it, so no one says, oh dear, Lisa's limping and she needs help. Since our hearts can beat even when they are decimated into a thousand fragments of agonizing pain, we become our own worst enemies by unknowingly blocking the resuscitation that we need. 
No one knows the details of the lame leg but us. We don't limp. We don't even slow down. If anything, we keep it moving and overcompensate. (laughs) Ever get complimented on a job well done that when you performed it, you were mad as hell? (laughs) Emotional wounds are powerful and can be vicious. Part of their nature is to hide. It's the only way they can survive. So let's try not to be hurdle number one. As we transition to look at hurdle number two, I see the second hurdle blocking the support that could potentially ease our pain is comprised of everybody else. (laughs) And with all due respect to everyone else, I say you are part of the barricade that keeps those of us in grief from receiving the love, care, and compassion we so desperately need. And the number one reason for that, in my humble experience, is our old friend, F-E-A-R, fear. But before we go to fear, let me first say that there are indisputably miraculous segments of our population who don't block support and in fact facilitate it. These are the people who check in every so often just to say hi. They send cards months later after a loss. They pick up the coffee tab, not because it's expensive, but just to be kind. They offer to sit in on a meeting in our place so we can unplug for an hour. They know what our favorite foods, drinks, desserts, and flowers are, and they bring them over without asking. To this small group of rock stars, I say, we love you and we appreciate you, and hurdle number two does not apply to you. Now back to fear and hurdle number two. Fear is what happens when people sense we are emotionally injured, but say nothing. It's what rises when folks don't return our calls or call us on their own. Fear is the barricade between saying, how you doing? And, hey, I've been wondering how things are going for you and if you might need anything. Fear of saying the wrong thing at the wrong time to the wrong person are all ways we don't show up for others when we suspect and or confirm an emotional wound is hurting someone we care about. To be fair, grieving people will complain that someone said the wrong thing. We can't help it. (laughs) It just comes with the grieving territory because we are out of sorts ourselves. Nothing makes sense. So there's no need to micromanage words which words of support we can muster up the courage to share. I understand the proclivity towards staying silent around someone who's lost a loved one. We fear saying the wrong thing, and we don't want to be that person. And if we are grieving, we may be quick to judge the verbs and the nouns someone uses in an attempt to connect. But we must remind ourselves that the message is more important than the words that were used as the vehicle for communicating support. In other words, let's be generous with our assumptions about how we react to what people say to us. At the very least, that person took that leap of faith to let you know that they care even if it came across abruptly or rotely. Plus, with most deaths, there just is no right thing to say. And in the post, I've shared in parentheses a link to Uh, grief public service announcement number four that I created a couple years ago on how to um, support someone and, you know, that there's no right thing to say. So check that out. So with most deaths, there is no right thing to say. 
So as a potential supporter, I'm already kind of screwed. It's a problem if I say nothing, and it's a problem if I say the wrong thing. It's like a trap we can't get out of, but we long to because we really do care about the person who's grieving. If you suspect you might be in the hurdle number two category, awesome. It means that you're still reading and still listening. And next time you know someone's hurting, you might just be able to jump over F-E-A-R and connect in some small way instead of staying silent. Click on the above link for ideas on reaching out to someone in grief and what those conversations might look like. Bringing this topic full circle, we started out by recognizing how appreciation of something beautiful can quickly transition to deep compassion if we are able to observe some injury they have sustained. The biggest barriers to doing this effectively are me and everyone else. We can avoid these hurdles if we learn to bust up the barricades. Here are a few ways to try. For hurdle number one, me, I just need to muster up the courage to let my emotional wounds have a public, observable expression, otherwise known as stop hiding. And for hurdle two, everyone else, you, we need to muster up the courage to say the wrong words to our loved one who's grieving, but with the right love, loving meaning, even when we're scared to say the wrong thing, and even when our support is not received well in that moment. The alternative is silence, and since we know grievers are already hiding, they need light, love, and levity, not abstinence from human connection. At the end of the day, choosing to show our lame leg, limp and all, is a decision to be vulnerable. Why the hell would we choose that? Well, at a minimum, it's the only way we can let others in on our little secret, that we are miserable, depressed, angry, and missing our loved one like crazy. Limping is no fun, but it's the only way for others who love us to step in with the TLC that we need to heal. Lean on me, and I will lean on you, because make no mistake, we all get our turn to having a lame leg. So again, welcome for joining this episode of the Healing Path Podcast. And yeah, this is a hard conversation, um, but we're trying to increase our awareness, both to be present for ourselves and to be more present for others. And I can just about promise, if you have lost someone that you love, I'm sorry for your loss, but if you have lost someone that you love, for sure, somebody has said some wackadoodle thing that you were like, what? Um, when they say, you know, something, somebody says something that they, you know, perhaps think will be comforting or, um, you know, one of my favorites is like, well, God won't give you more than you can handle or time heals all wounds or, um, you know, at least she's not suffering anymore, you know, things like this. And quite frankly, um, you could say, you know, something magical, but if they're falling on my grieving ears, it's just going to hurt regardless. But from my experience, silence is worse. Silence is apathy. Silence is failing to be seen, failing to recognize that something terrible has happened in my life. And if we're in a relationship together, whether it be professional or personal or social, um, 
it's important to me to feel seen. So if I am the one that doesn't show any emotion or continues to carry on as if nothing has changed, that I'm actually the one who's in the way of that connection. And so what I wanted to talk about today was just having that awareness that people can't help us with those problems that we don't share. If they can't see we're hurting, there's no way for them to possibly step in. And for sure, if I'm hurting half the time, I don't even know it or I'm hiding it from myself. But that's why grief and healing is a journey. It's not a destination. We pick up skills along the way to try to live and integrate our pain um, without having to you know, completely give up our quality of life because our child got sick and died or because there was you know, some kind of an accident. And I would just invite us all to be generous with our <laughs> assumptions that when someone says the wrong thing, it's not because they mean to upset us. It's often just because there is no right thing to say. What do you say to someone who lost their child? I've heard a lot of different things like, um, you know, children aren't supposed to die before their parents. Okay, that's fair. But I can find a million ways to object to that. You know, if it's something loving, we still can feel insulted or assaulted or offended by it. And so I think that when that happens, we tend to shut down and clamp um, down and we miss whatever little bit of support, you know, is floating around in the ethos. And, and we need every bit of that support if we're going to have a shot at having a worthwhile, you know, quality of life that does integrate our pain. It doesn't forget our pain. But who the heck wants to live in a life that, you know, is just total pain and depression? I, for one, don't. And that's why I, you know, have committed to do the work that I do, because I want to help others understand. If someone says what seems like the wrong thing, at the very least, um, you know, you can just say thank you, or, you know, you can say nothing if it's that painful. And if it's that offensive. Um, and alternatively, or I guess I would say in addition, is if someone is saying nothing and you feel like they're ignoring your pain or they're not uh, acknowledging maybe that you lost someone that you love, take a shot at um, sharing your experience when you're you know safe, when you feel comfortable enough, when you're sturdy enough. Because if others can't see our wounds, they can't help us. And again, you know, often it's us that, you know, we're hiding from ourselves. But at some point, um, as years go on and we learn to live without people that we love, and it happens to every single one of us if we're going to be a human being, we're going to have to give each other a little bit of slack, a little bit of forgiveness, and a little bit of, you know, just levity and understanding. If somebody is dying um, out of an accident or a crisis or some kind of tragic situation, particularly if it's violent, which I wrote a little bit about last week and talked a little bit about that. It, it's really, there's nothing for anyone to say. But what I feel like I've learned is I'd rather have someone say the wrong thing and at least try to connect than carry on business as usual, because that loneliness is a pain that it's all of its own. And it really does complicate our ability to continue moving forward. Not moving on, but moving forward. So as always, if you have anything to share, we'd love to hear from you at lisamcfarland.com in the blog. 
in the post. There are some links to some of the references made uh, here in the podcast. And until we meet again, let's all do our best to stay present, to stay grateful, and to stay healing. And as always, I sincerely thank you for listening.